chapter fifteen a of bible defense of slavery by josiah priest this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter fifteen in the following pages we are to meet a few more objections of abolitionism as well as present the reader with some other matters when we shall finish the labor of this work it is said by this class of men that the benevolence of the gospel contemplates the personal happiness of every human being and as individual freedom is an item in the sum of mortal enjoyments therefore the gospel in its spirit and tendencies is against slavery of every description and demands its abolishment but we answer this position by saying that although the spirit and tendencies of the christian religion most assuredly does contemplate the entire and perfect moral happiness of the whole human race upon certain conditions as obedience to its commands etc yet it does not and cannot interfere as we have before said with the judgments decrees or judicial acts of god until the purposes of such acts are accomplished in the earth although the gospel as announced in the new testament is a message of benevolence from heaven toward the sufferers of the earth yet death is not and cannot be counteracted as yet by its influence because death came by the appointment or judicial act of god on the account of sin placing the direful circumstance beyond the redeeming nature of that great system of atonement neither can it affect matters of less importance such as the circumstance of man's being compelled by a divine judgment to get his bread in the sweat of his face with pain toil and uncertainty the case of the woman who was placed by the same power judicially in a certain circumstance which is that of great pain and danger is also placed beyond the reach of the benevolence of the spirit of the gospel because she hearkened to the voice of the serpent in the matter of the forbidden tree does the gospel in its benevolent principles remove one item of the vast amount of what is called natural evil which the human race now is heir to such as sickness poverty accidents mistakes difference of men's opinions which are all the effects of the judicial proceedings of the creator toward man on the account of sin now if the spirit and tendencies of religion cannot as yet remove these disabilities or obstacles to man's happiness in this world how therefore can it be expected that it can alter the doom of the negro race which as the bible establishes is founded on the same foundation that of the decree of god and raises a barrier which is impassable and insurmountable to all earthly power even the famous words of our lord called the golden rule cannot apply here neither does this rule appear with power 
to break down any civil establishment of society. It was not so intended or understood by the first disciples and writers of the New Testament. It was not intended by that great and good doctrine that servants and masters, debtors and collectors, rich and poor, should change condition, or even to be put on a par with each other by that precept of the Lord. It signifies nothing more than that all men, under all circumstances of trouble, should do by each other in all kindness, just what they would reasonably desire done to themselves in like circumstances. This precept, therefore, was not meant to reach the case of slavery, as to its abolishment, any more than it was the other cases, as above named. It enjoined on masters to extend to servants, minors, and slaves all needed tenderness and consideration, as they themselves could reasonably desire were they in a like condition. The patriarch Job did thus toward his slaves, and no more. See chapter 31, verse 13, where he says that he did not despise the cause of his man or maid servant, and yet he did not manumit them after all. It will not answer to extend that rule to extremes, as by preserving in such a course, we should unhinge all the regulations of society, at the voice of every complaint, effecting nothing but a continued change of circumstances, from one extreme to another, without adding a wit to the comfort of any body permanently. Abolitionists contend, in their publications and lectures, that the condition of bondmen among the Jews was a condition of comparative comfort and equality with their masters, and that the law of Moses made it so. But we have never been able to discover this, while we have found the entire contrary. On this subject, the statement of Adam Clark may have some weight, as no man on earth was better informed respecting oriental manners in those ages. See his comment on the passage above quoted, from Job chapter 31 verse 13, as follows. Quote, in ancient times, slaves had no action at law against their masters. They might dispose of them as they did their cattle or any other property. The slave might complain, and the master might hear him, if he pleased, but he was not compelled to do so. Job states that he admitted them, however, to civil rights, and far from preventing their case from being heard, he was ready to permit them to complain, even against himself, and to give them all the benefit of the law. Job was a righteous man, and in that thing did right. And yet we do not learn that he set his slaves free. Let every slaveholder do the same. Josephus states, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 4, page 130, that slaves were not allowed to be witnesses in any court. 
from all this it appears that the case of the negro slaves of those times and among the jews in particular was in no wise superior if it was as good as in america except in such cases as when they fell into the hands of men as good as were job and abraham consequently the notion that the slaves of the jews under the law of moses was a comfortable condition of life as held by abolitionists falls to the ground as does most of their doctrines and positions it is affirmed by abolitionists that because god at first and prior to the fall and as soon as he had created man said that everything which was made was very good that therefore negro man was made equal with white men but this comment of theirs fails when it is reconciled that there was at that time no negroes in existence nor never would have been had not god have seen fit to produce them about one thousand five hundred and fifty-six years after the original creation of man in the way and manner already described in the first pages of this work and soon after to appoint him to slavery it has been urged upon the attention of the writer of this work by abolitionists that we ought seriously to examine the difference there is between judicial law and divine law in relation to the enslaving negro men in ancient times the judicial law said that the jews might buy and possess slaves but the divine law says thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is slavery consistent with this divine law in answer to this question we dare not array these two laws against each other seeing they are both of the same origin we think it were a much safer course to say that these laws so different in their effects have a high regard for each other and do not encroach upon their respective powers and applications judicial law requires execution and the law of love delights in mercy but till an equivalent is paid down mercy can do nothing now who has redeemed the negro race from the curse of noah and the force of that judicial law it has never been done the law of love says love thy neighbor as thyself but who is our neighbor we answer that our neighbors are of various descriptions and the divine law says love them all in their respective characters whether slaves or free rich or poor wise or simple learned or unlearned black white or red good or bad and all this without politically meddling with their domestic affairs the supreme being having seen fit to abjudge the negro race to a condition of servitude among men we are not therefore bound to believe that this abjucation is not contrary or inconsistent with the law of love as it relates to man as we see that we may love a slave in the religious sense of the word and yet 
have nothing to do with his state of bondage, unless we have an inclination to manumit them, if they are our own property. But there is no law which requires this, whether judicial or divine, or it would have been noticed by St. Paul, when he had the subject of negro slavery under his pen, upon which we have already treated in a former section of this work. There is another argument to answer, which is brought forward by abolitionists in favor of the equality of negroes with white men, and in favor of the amalgamation of these two races. This argument of theirs is founded on the twelfth chapter of Numbers, one of the books of the Decalogue, or the laws of Moses. But before we enter upon an investigation of that chapter, in relation to the doctrine alleged by abolitionists, we will merely observe that they are a strange set of logicians, inasmuch as, when the law of Moses is appealed to as an evidence of the legal enslaving of the negro Canaanites, then that law is found to be antiquated, out of date, and of no force. But when, in the same law, there happens to be found a passage that seems to make in favor of any of the dogmas of abolitionism, lo, it is seized upon with avidity, and held to be of the greatest force and authority, and by no means antiquated or inefficient, being first-rate scripture. The chapter alluded to reads as follows. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses, because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And, they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, and unto Aaron, and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of a cloud, and stood in the door of the tabernacle, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then, were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days, and after that let her be received again? And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and all the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. On examining this chapter, does it appear on what account Miriam was made a loathsome leper and driven out of the camp? Was it for finding fault with her brother Moses, for marrying the black woman, or because she had joined with Aaron and others in doubting whether God had indeed spoken only by Moses? It appears that her crime consisted wholly of the latter, which was for invading by contentious words the divine dictatorship of Moses, to the exclusion of all others, over the twelve tribes. In her punishment, God said not a word about the woman Moses had married, nor respecting Miriam's having found fault with the marriage, but confined his remark wholly to the subject of the mission of Moses, as God's mouth to the people as is seen by referring to the sixth, seventh, and eighth verses of that chapter. There is no doubt, however, but the circumstance of her brothers having married one of the cursed race was one of her reasons why he ought not to possess alone the dignity of being sole dictator. The circumstance, as she seems to have thought, was degrading, on which account she found fault with him as reads the first verse of the chapter. That the Hebrews were not to marry with the Negroes of Canaan is evident from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3, and reads as follows. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, that is the Canaanites. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou not take unto thy son. Here it is plain that the law of Moses forbids amalgamation of the Jew blood with that of the Negroes. And yet abolitionists contend that God, who was the author of that law, struck Miriam with a loathsome disease in token of his anger at her, because she found fault with the very thing the law found fault with and forbid. This view of the matter is sufficient to convince any man that the crime of Miriam was not about the marriage, but the sacred office of Moses only. But, says one, an abolitionist, perhaps, the writer, in this opinion of his, has got himself into a tangle at last, as we cannot see, but he is compelled to show up Moses as a flagrant sinner against his own law, for having married that Ethiopian woman. Not so, is our reply, for Moses did that thing some forty years before the time the law was given to him from Mount Sinai, at a time when he knew no more of the will and law of God than any other man who had been born and brought up among the Egyptians. But when he received the law, then he became informed of the will and designs of God, in that as well as in all other matters. 
as to the fate of the woman he had married in the land of midian at the time he fled from egypt for killing an egyptian see exodus chapter 2 verse 12 we learn nothing from the scriptures further than that she came to the jewish camp with jethro her father in the wilderness thus it is certainly clear that the abolition opinion of the equality of negroes with other men and the propriety and righteousness of amalgamation by marriage with them derives no support from that portion of holy writ but receives a rebuke of the most decided description from the very law itself respecting this race we find that god took particular care that their blood should not become mingled with the line through which the messiah was to come this is a remarkable fact to prove this see genesis chapter 38 the whole chapter where is related the history of judah's having had three sons by the canaanitish woman who of course was a negress two of those sons were slain by the lord for a certain wickedness they did while the third son shelah by name escaped genesis chapter 38 verses 7 and 10 but is not reckoned in the line of the holy seed which was continued through another branch of judah's blood namely by the son of tamar a jewess is not this fact a proof that the negro blood was not estimated to be as good as the blood of shem even by the creator himself as manifested in that transaction he even preferred the line of the illegitimate son of tamar by judah for the line of the messiah rather than the line of the canaanitish race in agreement with this rejection of the negro blood as it related to things holy in the jewish religious economy it is seen that although the two sons of moses by his ethiopian wife whose names were gershom and eleazar were reckoned with the tribe of levi yet in the service of the temple they were never allowed to officiate in any office above that of porters scribes or some other kind of laborious service even the temple and the priesthood of the jews had negro slaves who were the whole tribe of the gideonites one of the nations of canaan appointed to that doom by joshua chapter 9 verse 23 as follows now therefore ye are cursed and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my god this class of slaves says adam clark were called nethkiims or slaves of the temple and had been thus from the days of joshua till the time of solomon and from thence to the time of the great babylonian captivity when it is likely says clark they remained among the chaldeans as by going back to judea they could gain nothing but their old condition of bondmen now from the time of joshua till that of captivity was over eight hundred years during which time it is not hard to conjecture that many millions came of the race all of whom were born slaves 
for Joshua had said that none of them should ever be freed from a state of slavery, as is seen in the above-quoted scripture. From this fact we discover also that the Jubilees did the Negro Canaanite slave no good, as is contended by abolitionists, as they were never to be made free. If, then, the Negro slaves of the temple could not be freed by the Jubilees, how much less, therefore, the more common slaves among the people? But, says one, how is this? You assert that the blood of the progenitors of Jesus Christ was never, through that long vista of time, from Noah till his advent, contaminated or mixed with Negro blood. And yet Rahab, a Canaanitish woman, was one of his ancestors, according to St. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. In that chapter, you will find that Solomon, the father of Boaz, who was the father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, and the father of King David, married this said Rahab, of the town of Joshua, a Canaanitish city. Now, sir, continues the objector, as that woman was a Canaanite, she was, according to your theory, a negress of the very race of Ham, and consequently her blood was mixed in the lineal descent of our Lord. To this severe criticism we reply as follows, and assert that although Rahab was a citizen of the town or city of Jericho in the land of Canaan, yet was she not a negress, nor at all descended of the race of Ham, nor was she a Canaanitess by blood or race. But how is this made out? We will show you. See Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 3, and onward, as well as the Book of Joshua, chapter 23, verses 12 and 13, where it was strictly forbidden, under the displeasure of Jehovah himself, to every individual of the twelve tribes of the Jews, to marry with any of the Canaanitish race, which consisted of seven mighty nations, all of whom are set forth by name in this seventh chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, if Rahab had been of that race, and belonged by blood to any of those seven nations, Solomon would not, as a prince of the tribe of Judah, have been allowed to have had this woman for a wife. Rahab, therefore, was of the blood of Shem, and but a citizen of the country as an inhabitant only, while by race she possessed no consanguinity to the blood of Ham. Solomon, as a prince of the regal line of Judah, of which tribe came our Lord, could not have violated the law of Moses in so flagrant and horrid a manner, as to have married a black woman, a Canaanitess, and thus to have provoked the vengeance of the God of Abraham, which is everywhere threatened, as often as the subject is alluded to in all the books of the law. Thus we defend, as we believe, our opinion, which asserts that the blood of the Negro race did not at all mix with the lineal blood of the Savior of mankind. Now, as we find this grand interdiction, 
respecting the Jewish intermarriages with any and all the seven Negro nations of Canaan, we may, with the utmost propriety, believe, in addition, that the interdiction extended to the whole race settled in other countries beside old Canaan, as it would have been equally deleterious and corrupting to the sacred descent of Jesus Christ, to have been connected with the blood of Negroes out of Canaan, as within that country. But in the whole book of God, there is no command, either direct or implied, against Jewish marriages, whether before or after the giving of the law of Moses, with the race of Japheth, the progenitor of the white race of mankind. And although Jesus Christ is the proffered Savior of all the human race, blacks and all, yet was it abhorrent to God, as we believe, that the immaculate blood of his Son, which was to be offered as an atonement, should be contaminated by that of Negro extraction. It is a remarkable fact, which, in connection with the above, cannot fail to make due impression on the reader's mind, that persons who had flat noses could not be a priest of the sanctuary of the Mosaic worship. See Numbers chapter 21, verse 18. This regulation was, doubtless, to guard the blood of the priesthood from any contamination of the race of Ham, as a prominent feature of that people is a flat nose. There was never a king nor prophet of the Jews who had negro blood in his veins, and yet there were multitudes of the Jews, as well as the Israelites, who were thus tinctured by unlawful connections with the Canaanites, which was against the law of Moses, as well as the law of nature. It is a singular fact that all the first labors of the apostles, after the resurrection of Christ, were directed northward from Jerusalem, among the whites, and not southward in Africa. To the north, in Italy, was the place of the throne of the Roman Empire. To the north lay all the Grecian tribes, among whom Paul and his associates went preaching the gospel. Is not this a proof of the superiority of the white blood above that of the African? Or these first missionaries would not have thus chosen that race as the conservators of the new system of divinity given to the world by Jesus Christ? In accordance with this view, we notice that the Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and New Testaments, were given to the protection of the white race, and by them have been preserved and handed down to the present time. The New Testament, in particular, has been preserved by the white race after the age of the apostles, as the Jews deride that part of the scriptures as false, and the African had nothing to do with its original preservation or compilation. Abolitionists say that Negro slavery is a curse upon earth, and that the curse of God is on the country and families wherever the thing is practiced. And yet we find in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 9, that when God, 
by the mouth of Noah, blessed Shem and Japheth, he gave them as one item in their blessings a right to make servants of the race of Ham. It was the same with the Hebrews many hundred years after, under the reign of Moses, as a lawgiver, when God promised his blessings upon them as a people, upon condition of their obedience, making one item of those blessings to be the privilege of enslaving the Canaanites. If to hold slaves is a curse to any man or country, as abolitionists say it is, then principles must have strangely changed in the administration of God's providence since the days of Abraham. For to him, the possession of bondmen and bondmaids was one item in the great amount of the mercies and blessings of God to that patriarch, in whose seed all the families of the earth were to be blessed. See Genesis chapter 24, verse 35, as follows. And the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he is become great, and hath given him flocks and herds, and silver and gold, and manservants and maidservants, and camels and asses. But Abraham did right by his slaves, of whom he owned vast numbers, on which account the blessing of having bondmen was not changed to a curse, as are all the mercies of God when abused by the wicked. How, therefore, is it true, as abolitionists say, that the enslaving of the race originated in the foulest wickedness? It is not true, never was, and never will be except in the abuse of the institution. End of chapter 15a